The fight against police brutality and government corruption is a global movement that shares harsh realities and stark differences everywhere you look. In Brazil, activists are fighting a unique, multi-tiered structure of policing that's seemingly fueled by corruption and anti-blackness. Today, we're going to follow the fight for liberation to Brazil, where in 2018, the only black queer woman sitting on Rio de Janeiro City Council was ambushed on her way home after years of calling for the end of state violence and police brutality in the city. Though the goal was to remove her influence from the community she stood for, her death has only served as fuel to the fire. Join me as we dive into the assassination of Mariele Franco, Brazil's symbol of resistance and hope. I'm Tamara Hill and welcome to Right the Wrong, a podcast for people who love true crime, care about understanding the world, and care even more for the people who fight to make that world better. This episode may contain language, scenarios, and situations that aren't suitable for all audiences. Please prioritize yourself while you listen. To the people that supported her, Mariele Franco was a champion. When she was elected to Rio City Council in 2016, she received the fifth highest number of votes amongst the city's 51 council members. She ran a campaign centered on the unrepresented, uplifting Afro-Brazilians, women, mothers, the youth, the queer, and people from the favelas, which are what overcrowded, impoverished neighborhoods in Brazil are called. Mariele fought for people she saw herself in, a black woman who became a single mother at 19. She worked her way out of a favela, earning a bachelor's degree in social sciences and a master's in public administration. Her confidence as a leader and passion for community was obvious, even as a teenager. Then she spent a lot of her time working in the community garden or in her church's nursery and participating in informal debates with community members. While Mariele was preparing for university, a friend of hers was killed by a stray bullet during a shootout between a local gang and police, and that changed her career trajectory for good. She then worked as a parliamentary assistant for 10 years for a representative who also prioritized gang violence and paramilitary violence. While there, she also worked on the Legislative Assembly's Commission for Human Rights. After a decade working for a state legislator and advocating for families and young people from the favelas, Mariele realized she had the capacity to do more to help her people, and she decided to run for office herself. Her mother wrote in a piece for Time magazine, that Mariella's campaign for city council was, quote, one of the most beautiful experiences in the city's political history. Mariella had managed to make a beautiful life for herself, one filled with happiness and accomplishments. At 37, she was the only black woman counselor in Rio. She had raised her daughter to an adult, and she was planning to legally marry her partner of 14 years, Monica, within the next year. Mariele's run for office left her partner and mother worried. They worried about the discrimination Mariele would face and about the enemies she would make along the way. But despite that worry, Mariele proved to be an incredible politician, one who kept to her promises and put people first. Mariele had a presence about her. It was bright and commanding, and she brought that presence with her as a council member. 
During 15 months in office, she became a rapporteur for Rio's Commission for Police and Military Oversight, and she introduced 16 bills, two of which were passed as laws, one focusing on motorcycle taxis in the favelas, and one focused on city contracts with social health organizations. While Marielle focused on many issues as an activist and council member, she was especially critical of police brutality and corruption in Rio. And this is how she made most of her enemies. A colleague of hers, Councilman Chico Alencar, commented to the BBC that Marielle was brave, and her bravery and advocacy bothered cops, militiamen, and mafias across Rio, big and small. The police force in Rio is heavily backed by a government trying to follow through on a tough-on-crime agenda and has an international reputation for being corrupt, violent, and careless. While the crime rates in Brazil are some of the highest in the world, the government's hard stance on crime doesn't appear to be doing much good because of the other far-right policies pushed by the sitting president. The country still lacks strong social services that would help alleviate poverty, and according to Reuters, murders rose in the country after a measure by the government to increase gun ownership was successful, and registered guns doubled in the country to almost 1.3 million. Human Rights Watch found that in 2019, over 6,350 people were killed by police countrywide, and Reuters notes that in 2020, the murder count rose to over 6,400. A report by the Brazilian Public Security Forum found that 78.9% of these people killed were black and most of them were young men. A 2020 New York Times study explained that in 2019, the Rio police alone killed over 1,814 people. I know some people take the stance that the death of criminals and these police killings are justified, but to that I just want to say two things. First, the role of police is not to play judge, jury, and executioner. Rather, to keep communities safe and apprehend those accused of crime. People who commit crimes deserve to have their day in court, not shot on sight like animals. And two, when the police shoot those who do not pose an imminent threat or danger, or they initiate shootouts, they are breaking the law and they're endangering the innocent. Legally, police in Brazil are only supposed to use deadly force if they are faced with an imminent threat. But New York Times analysis examined 48 police killings in Rio and found that in half of those cases, those murdered were shot in the back at least once, and 20 people were shot at least three times. And the claims of self-defense seem unlikely to be true. Being shot in the back indicates that a person was running away, not posing a threat. And it doesn't take three shots to incapacitate a threat. It doesn't even take three shots to kill someone in a lot of instances. Furthermore, in those 48 murders, no officers were harmed by people they were pursuing. Half of the officers involved in these cases had previously been charged with a crime, and a fourth had been previously charged with murder. And outside of those 48 cases, we also know that those killed are people caught in the crossfire. Like 14-year-old Jao Pinto, who was shot in the back when police raided a home he was playing in with his cousins. Or 19-year-old Rodrigo Sequera, who was killed while working a COVID-19 food drive outside of a school when police started shooting. Or 14-year-old Marcus Vinicius, who was killed during an airstrike mission on his way to school. Marielle spoke out against police brutality and oppression of the favelas until her death. In one of her last tweets, posted the day before she was assassinated, Marielle highlighted the murder of Matthias Melo by police, saying, 
Matthias Melo was leaving for church. How many more will it take to stop this war? Marielle spent the last night of her life, March 14, 2018, doing what she loved, convening with her friends and young people from the community at a debate event organized by her political party as part of a series called 21 Days of Activism Against Racism. After two hours of engaging debate, community building, and providing mentorship, Marielle and her friends and fellow panelists had finished the day. They talked about grabbing a beer at a local bar. Some went, but Marielle decided to head home. She had had a really hard day at the office, dealing with some issues regarding the decisions of the city's mayor. It was about 9.30. She was tired, ready to call it a day. We don't know what was running through Marielle's mind in the car that night on the way home. With her driver, Anderson Gomez, at the wheel, Marielle sat in the back with her assistant. Did they sit and reflect on the day they had just had? Did they talk about the day to come and what their strategy was going to be to get through to the mayor? Maybe they sat in silence, and Marielle thought about getting home to her daughter and partner, who she hadn't seen all day. Suddenly, a silver car pulled up and rammed into Marielle's car, almost pushing it onto the sidewalk. The men in the car fired nine shots, concentrating in the back where Marielle was sitting, and then sped away. While her aide survived, Anderson and Marielle weren't as lucky. Marielle was hit four times in the face and head. She died instantly. Since Marielle was assassinated, thousands of people have protested in Brazil and around the world. Festivals in Brazil have been held in Marielle's honor. People wear shirts that say, fight like Marielle. You can find Marielle murals around Rio, and some people, like her widow Monica, even have her face tattooed on their arms. But one thing that hasn't been done to honor Marielle is solving her assassination. This coming March 14th marks four years since Marielle was murdered, and yet those accused of committing her murder have not stood trial. And honestly, y'all, the conspiracy surrounding her murder has left me overwhelmed and spiraling. But I'm going to try to do my best to walk us through it. So to make things clear, at any point in time, there seem to be three different police forces involved in this investigation and conspiracy. The Federal Police of Brazil, the Civil Police of Rio de Janeiro State, and the Military Police. The Federal Police handle federal crimes, similar to like the FBI in the U.S. or the NCA in the U.K., the civil police are state-level police who handle investigative services, and the military police are considered a preventative policing agency of the state, staffed by reserve members of the Brazilian army. Brazil also has unlawful militias, which are illegal paramilitary groups made up of current and former police officers, military members, firefighters, and politicians. They have a hand in organized crime and vigilante activities, and they are a huge source of corruption in the country. When you hear Brazilian activists talking about police brutality, killings, and corruption, it's usually in reference to the harm inflicted by the military police and militias, but there's also documented corruption issues within the other agencies too. From the jump, the investigation into the assassination uncovers some shocking details. The ammunition used to fire at Marielle's car that night was a 9mm caliber, and a HK MP5 submachine gun was used. This is significant because in Brazil, there are certain guns and ammunition that are restricted and can only be used by the military and security forces. 
9 millimeter ammo and the gun used fall into that category. And while yes, sometimes this ammo and gun do sell on the black market in Brazil, the rounds used in the murders were actually traced back to a batch of ammo sold to the federal police. That batch was apparently stolen from their headquarters years prior to the murder. So at this point, it became likely the police were looking for someone capable of either breaking into and stealing from a police headquarters stacked with thousands of guns and officers, or the theft was an inside job and they were trying to find one of their own. Over the next few weeks, the speed of the investigation is slow. A few days after the murders, police receive a tip and find an abandoned car they believe the shooters could have been driving that night. In street cam images, two silver cars are shown following Marielle's car before the attack, so police follow theories for one or two cars of assailants. In April, they pull partial fingerprints off of the shell casings from the crime scene, which isn't immediately helpful. It's really hard to compare partial prints to fingerprints in databases that police organizations may have and pull suspects. But it could be helpful in the future because if they can make any arrests, partial fingerprints can easily be compared to suspects in the case. In May, the investigation gets more interesting because there's a witness who shows up and tells police that they used to work for Councilman Marcelo Siciliano and defend that the hit on Mariella's life was ordered by the councilman after conspiring with a former military police officer named Orlando Araujo. And it's this accusation that starts us down the rabbit hole of Brazilian police, crime, and the investigation into Mariella and Anderson's murders. So much so that our dive into the assassination of Marielle Franco will be Right the Wrong's first two-part episode, with the goal of giving Marielle's story the attention it deserves and giving you, the listener, all of the information you need to understand the case and form your own opinions. The Marcelo Orlando theory, heavily reported by O Global, is one that has the most traction and the most written about it, even being discussed by international outlets like Al Jazeera and Reuters. Not only did this witness come in with these accusations, they came in with receipts. According to Reuters, this witness was a former militia member trusted to attend the meetings between Marcelo and Orlando. They gave police three different statements with dates and times of meetings between the two men and the names of four different men chosen to carry out the surveillance and murder of Marielle. The witness also says the two men believed Marielle's activism was getting in the way of their political ambitions and that she was a problem that needed to be solved. Orlando was arrested shortly after these accusations and imprisoned for leading a militia, but is accused of asking a man who worked for him, named Eduardo, to clone a 2014 silver cobalt, the same kind of car used in the murders. Car cloning is giving a car a license plate number that mimics another car. People do this to prevent their identity from being connected to the ownership of a vehicle, making it easier for them to commit crimes without being caught. Eduardo admitted to the cloning of numerous cars, including a silver Cobalt 2014. He told investigators that he couldn't say for sure if the Cobalt he cloned was the one used in the murders, but he said that he saw, quote, great similarity to the vehicle that was in his hands. Of course, Marcelo and Orlando both deny all of these accusations. Marcelo says he's never even met Orlando and that he doesn't even know him. He claims the accusations are fake and that he's being framed. Marielle was a friend he says. She even came to my birthday party. 
A less reported second theory is that then-state deputy Dominic Brazeo ordered the hit on Marielle. Though this theory has less media outlets talking about it, it does have some governmental backing, because in her last day in office, former Prosecutor General of the Republic, Raquel Dodge, indicted Brazeo as the head of the murder conspiracy. The details of these accusations have been heavily reported by the Universal Online, also called the UOL. UOL also released conversations acquired through a federal wiretap. They cite a February 8, 2019 conversation between a militiaman named Beto Bamba and Councilman Marcelo Siciliano. Yes, the same Councilman Marcelo Siciliano from Theory 1. In this call, Beto tells Marcelo that Dominic paid almost 100,000 U.S. dollars to have Marielle killed. Reporting by Brazil de Fado highlights another federal wiretap, where another militiaman says that Dominic's motivations could have been to look after his own interests. His brother is a federal congressman whose electoral district was close to Marielle's. And while at the time of her assassination, Marielle was a real councilwoman, the natural progression of her political journey could have led her to a federal run, where she could have hindered Dominic's brother's chances of re-election. This could have been damaging for Dominic, because he and his brother are also business partners, and according to the same article, their businesses benefited quite a bit from their political positions. Dominic and Marcelo are both also said to have business interests in the West Zone of Rio, which is known for being occupied by militia owners and politicians. These interests are said to have ties to militia groups, which, if true, provides another motive for both men, as Marielle's advocacy would have threatened the success of their militia back to businesses. However, Dominic continues to deny these accusations as well. A third theory is that the hit on Marielle came from formal councilman and militiaman Cristiano Guerrero as a form of revenge on Congressman Marcelo Freixo, who was a mentor of Marielle's, because Freixo added Guerrero as a militiaman, which, remember, is illegal. And of course, Guerrero denies any involvement. I can't find much more on this theory, but it was mentioned a couple of times in the source material, so I found it worthwhile to mention. The fourth and last theory was actually the first thought Marielle's loved ones had about her assassination, that it was carried out by one or more of Brazil's policing organizations. Even some of the accused are backing this claim up. Marcelo and Orlando are adamant that they're being framed and set up by the police to take the fall for the assassination of Marielle and the murder of Anderson. Orlando was so infuriated by these accusations, he just straight up started telling the entire business of Rio's militia groups and outing police corruption that he knew about, arguing that he was being framed. He spilled so much tea to police that two new investigations were opened up, one into Mariela's killing by Rio's public prosecutor and one by the federal police into corruption in the police's homicide division. Orlando who, remember, is considered by many a dangerous man, charged with leading an illegal militia and, in turn, human rights violations and murder, turned on everything he knew before prison and told militia secrets. This man is a convicted militiaman and murderer. He's been in prison since his arrest in 2017. One may think that with all those charges on a person, there would be no reason to lie or hide about conspiring to or helping plan a murder. We can't know for sure, but we need to be asking the tough questions and thinking about how deep this police corruption possibly runs. And if these men, morally questionable themselves, are actually being framed by an institutional force much more powerful than one or a few men. Next time, we'll finish Marielle's story and hopefully get closer to the truth. I hope with two weeks you'll be given enough time to consider these four theories and come into the next episode with some ideas 
and your own opinions on who you think assassinated Mariela Franco. And as usual, you'll hear some advocacy options from me, so you can have ways to be involved or help. Until then, thanks to those that have given Right the Wrong a rating on their podcast apps. If you haven't, take time to leave a rating or maybe even give us our first set of reviews on Apple Podcasts. Though the investigation into the assassination of Mariela Franco and the murder of Anderson Gomez aren't 100% complete, there have been numerous arrests made, not only in the killing directly, but also concerning greater corruption and abuse in the country. I'm really excited to talk with you all about those arrests and the developments in the case next time. Remember, this coming March 14th marks four years since Marielle was stolen from her loved ones and her fight for liberation. But to many, she remains a symbol. And the continuous developments against corruption following her death indicate that Marielle's power did not leave her community in death, but stands with them and continues to surge on. As Monica said when Marielle was laid to rest, her voice cannot be silenced, even if her body is dead. This podcast is researched, scripted, edited, produced, and hosted by me, Tamara Hill. A full list of source material is available at writetherongpodcast.blogspot.com. And that link is also in the episode description box. Special thanks to the co-editor and musical producer, Cy the Savage, for our theme music. If you liked this episode, like, subscribe, or leave a review. I read all of your comments, and it helps other future fans find the show. The artwork for Right the Wrong includes a graphic called the Universal Logo for Human Rights. This logo was created by Prijak Stekik of Serbia. The logo is open to be used by anyone at no cost to promote and protect human rights. Read more about and get access to this logo at the United Nations Office for the High Commissioner of Human Rights website. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. Until then, you can find the show on Instagram at RightTheWrongPodcast, or you can use the hashtag RightTheWrongForHumanRights to engage further. Thank you for joining me on this journey to highlight the power of people and the power of us all.